have a Bible, please open it up to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to read beginning in verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by Your promise to meet with us and by Your presence here. And Lord, we pray that You would help us to to glean from Your Word. Lord, as we begin this this short series and we begin to learn about what what the Bible teaches us about who we are, where we come from, and, and what we are supposed to be now that we're here, I pray that You would give us all courage to be who You've called us to be. Lord, I pray that You would speak to us. That You would continue, like we just sang, to to build Your church until the the whole earth is filled with Your glory. That's our goal, and that's that's our prayer, is we want to see Your glory made manifest over the whole earth. Lord, we pray that You would meet with us in a special way, we pray that You'd pour out Your Spirit, Lord, and, and help us to understand what You have to say to us. Help me to, to, be, to preach with clarity of speech and thought, and help us all to be able to listen and understand with, with clarity of thought. Lord, I pray that You would use today as a time to strengthen Your church all over the world. Pray for... Christians who are persecuted, who are uh, gathering this morning at the risk of their own lives, and for Christians who are gathering today at absolutely no risk at all. I don't know who has the greatest harm there. I pray that you would help us all to be uh, well aware of the privilege it is to meet and to worship. Lord, I pray that you would help our government and the officials that oversee our nation. Lord, I pray that you would give them wisdom and guidance. Lord, I pray that you would help them to to support and reward good. I pray that you would help them to punish evil doing. And Lord, I pray that whenever those two get mixed up, whenever they begin to reward 
evil and to punish good. I pray that you would set things right. I pray that you would help us as a church to be the prophetic voice that calls our leaders back to your word. We pray for them and we pray that you would give them wisdom. Help us to be good citizens. Help us to live peaceful and quiet lives. To love one another. Lord, I pray for the ones who couldn't be here with us this morning. I pray that you will look after them, strengthen them, comfort them. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may have a seat. The title of the sermon today is God's Design for Human Beings. God's Design for Human Beings. And I, and I want to try to answer this question. Where did we come from and why does it matter? Where did we come from and why does it matter? Many in our day would say, they would ask the second question first. Why does it matter? There, there are so many other issues going on in the world. So many other things that are so important. There, are, there, is, there is persecution. There is starvation. There, there, is, there is crime. There's all these things that are happening in our world. Why would we not lay aside origins, lay aside whatever happened, thousands, tens of thousands, millions, billions, whatever you believe, lay aside origins, and just focus on where we are right now. What does it matter where we come from? And, and, and I want to try to answer both of these. Where we come from and why does it matter? Because we're going to see that where we come from is, is what helps us answer the questions that we have that, uh, addressing those other issues. All of the problems that we have today stem from answering the question properly, where do we come from? If you get that question wrong, then we have all these other issues. But if we get that question, question right, then all the other issues will be fixed. And this is a foundational topic. I would assume that if most of you, if I just asked you, and just gave a little survey, where did we come from? I assume most of you would answer the question correctly. <clears throat> and that's good, because if what we learn today is true, and I believe it is, it's in the Bible, if what we learn today is true, then the next nine weeks will be simple, and easy. We, they will just be simple truths that, that encourage us, remind us of who we are, encourage us in our Christian walk, and help us to live out um, the different roles that God has given us as, as men, women, moms, dads, husbands, fathers, and the like. If what we study today is not true, then the next nine weeks are going to be really confusing. But I believe that this is true. The world around us, through every outlet, you name it, music, celebrities, television, news, radio, your mom and dad, your friends, your co-workers, um, educational institutions, you name it. Everything that the world has is constantly screaming at us and telling us certain things about who we are and and what our duty is now that we're here, what we should be doing, how we should carry out our lives. And they tell us, for the most part, that and when it comes to decision-making and living out our lives, that we should live however we feel is best, based on how we feel. It's subjective. 
whatever is right for you, then do it. Now they would tell us that for the most part, men and women are not that much different. And, and those lines are beginning to blur more and more with the, you know, the, the, the new restroom laws that they're trying to pass where you know, men can go in a women's restroom if they feel like a man or a woman can go in a men's restroom if she feels like a woman. Those lines are beginning to blur. Men and women are not that much different. Marriage is something to be avoided at all costs. By all means, don't get married, especially if you're still in school. God forbid get married while you still have classes to take. And then, of course, children are a curse. Put them off as long as possible. Get all your fun out of the way before you have kids. And then once you start having them, don't have too many because your life just plummets into the pit after you have children. In essence, the world is teaching us everything that is the opposite of what the Bible teaches us. And the question that we need to ask is, how has the visible church, that is, how, has, how have those who claim to be Christians responded to what the world has said? That there's, there's sort of this conversation going back and forth. How have we responded to what the world has tried to tell us over the past several generations? And in some things, we've responded well. And in other things, we've responded not so well. As a matter of fact, in a lot of things, we've just responded not at all. We just don't say anything. And we just sort of fall in line with what the culture has done. And we say, concerning some of these cultural issues, God doesn't have opinions on those things. If He does have opinions, if the Bible does speak to those things, then it's, the opinions are outdated and antiquated. They're for a different time and a different place. That's over there. That was back then. That's not here. That's not now. Definitely, that's, that's not America. And so for generations, the professing church has just fallen in line with the culture. And so the modern professing Christian family, the family that says we are Christian, for the most part, looks no different than the family of the world. The pagan family, except for on Sunday mornings, and that is if everybody feels like going to church. Heaven forbid somebody wake up and not feel like going to church. For the most part, those who profess to be Christians wear the same clothes, shop at the same stores, watch the same shows on television, live the same lifestyles, have the same sense of humor, the same interests, and have the same sins. Again, those who profess to be Christians, that's the problem. I believe as many who profess to be Christians are just not Christians. So my plan is for the next nine weeks, I told you last week, is to show you that the Bible does address these things and that it's not outdated, it's not antiquated. It is true from the time it was written and for forever. The grass does wither and the flower will fade, but the Word of our God remains forever. It does not pass away. And so... There's no part of Scripture that we'll turn to and say, well, well, that just doesn't apply. There's always application. It may not be direct application, but there's always some sort of application. And the Bible does address many of these cultural issues. So when it comes to our origins, where we come from, there are a couple cultural perspectives. The predominant perspective of the world is what is called secular humanism. And secular humanism says 
There is no God. This is a predominantly atheistic worldview. There is no God. We evolved from some uh, sort of single-celled organism that came to be somehow. Scientists are going back and forth between you know, a Big Bang or aliens. It's a toss-up. It's tough. That's not a joke. We evolved. Because we evolved, there is no purpose. There's no reason for us being here. There's no intention. There's no rhyme. There's no reason. We're just an accident. We're, we're a spoof. Oops, there's, there's humanity. And so when it comes to our lives, whatever feels good, whatever feels right, as long as it doesn't hurt someone else, then do it. As long as you're not hurting somebody else. Unless it's a case in which that person enjoys being hurt and then by all means do it. That's secular humanism. Then you've got the modern American evangelical and they're very quick to tell you, oh, there is a God. Oh, yes, there is a God. There's one God. And He is very intimately involved in every very good thing that happens. And I sure wish He could stop all the bad things. And God really wants me to be happy. And so when it comes to my life decisions, if it feels right and it isn't explicitly prohibited in the red letters of my Bible and nobody's hurt if I do it, then it's okay for me to do. Now, I'm not going to open my Bible and study it and find out. I'm just going to assume based on how I feel, based on the fact that it makes me happy now, not five years ago or five years from now, but right now, I'm going to do it. That's the modern American evangelical mindset, the professing Christian. Now, if you'll notice, the modern evangelical, first of all, denies the existence of the one true God by saying, first of all, God doesn't have control over evil, and second, He doesn't have a clear standard of right and wrong. But both of these worldviews are humanistic. They put us and our pleasures and our desires in the center. We are the centerpiece. God wants us to be happy. It's all about how we feel. And so, if we are the centerpiece, and there's no outside voice, there's nobody telling us any different, then by all means, let's do whatever we want. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Let's, let's, let's do it. What are we doing here? But, if we are not the centerpiece, and there is a God who has spoken and given us clear instructions on how to live, then we must only do what He has commanded us to do. So what does the Bible have to say about this? About where we come from and how we should live? I want to give you three points today. Those three points are these. All human beings are created by God. All human beings are created in God's image. And all human beings are created to display God's glory. All human beings are created by God. All human beings are created in God's image. And all human beings are created to display God's glory. Very simple. Created by God. In God's image. For God's glory. Notice that is the opposite of humanistic. That is God-centered. The human race, mankind, is a God-centered entity. Number one, 
All human beings are created by God. Look at verse 27. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God. He created him. Male and female, He created them. It doesn't get any more clear than that. The Bible cannot be more explicit about where we come from than we are created by God. There's no question. There's no guessing or wondering. It's just we are created by God. Now, when we say created, we mean we have been brought into existence. That's what the word created means. Brought into existence. That means prior to this, there were no human beings. And then God created us and then now there are human beings. He created us. He brought us into existence. And then, now I want to list six implications that we can gather from this truth. Because this is basic. Like I said, if I were to poll all of us and say, where did we come from? Most of you, I believe, would say, God created us. But do we understand all of the implications that come out of this? So six things, if you're, if you're trying to do an outline, these would be under the main heading of God, or all human beings are created by God. Six implications to that. First of all, we are God's idea. Human beings are God's idea. This, we, we began in the thought processes of God. If you look back at Genesis chapter 1, Verse 1, we read, in the beginning, God. Notice there are no human beings around. No people. If there was a person, there's no doubt he or she, male or female, would have been very quick to interject their opinion as to how this should be done. But there was no human being. Here in our passage, beginning in verse 26 and down to the end of this chapter, there's no human being to be found. Man gives no advice, no input, no, no suggestions as to how this creation should take place. He doesn't put a little seed in God's mind to, to help him kickstart the idea in the thought processes of God. This is God's idea. If there was a, a patent or a copyright for mankind, God would own it. And God would have all the rights to it. And it's not for sale. It's not ours to take. It's His. He owns it. It's His idea conceived in His mind. It's God's thought. Second implication. We are made of God's initiative. We're made of God's initiative. This is where the thought begins to take action. Initiative is the ability to cause to start independently. So action begins here with initiative. Now, when action begins, we have to remember some things. Because again, even Christians have some warped views on why God began the creation process. God is not, does not, nor has He ever been lacking in anything, ever. This, is, this, this attribute of God is called His aseity. That is His complete self-sufficiency in and of Himself. He needs no outside help. Nothing outside of Himself to sustain Himself. When Moses spoke to God in the burning bush, the Bible makes clear that the bush was burning, but it was not consumed. 
Now, everything that we know that burns, whether it's a cigarette lighter or whether it's a campfire, the flame uses fuel. You have to have fuel in the lighter. When a campfire burns, when it's over, the wood is gone because the fire uses the wood for fuel. It, it burns it. But God, when He was burning in the bush, the bush was aflame, but the bush was not consumed. And the picture there is that God can sustain Himself with no fuel. He, he needs no outside input to keep Him going. He is completely self-sufficient. So this is contrary to many worldviews that would say, well, God created mankind because He, he wanted community. God wanted fellowship. God wanted someone to share His love with. That's false. That, that assumes that God didn't have community in eternity past, or God didn't have fellowship in eternity past, or God couldn't share His love in eternity past. If God couldn't share His love in eternity past, then when we read in 1 John 4, 8, God is love, that would mean that only began to be whenever human beings existed, and that's false. God can't change. That would be His immutability. He can't change. So he has to have been able to love in eternity past before the creation of mankind. So he's not lacking. And he's not constrained by anything outside of himself. Nothing outside of himself pressures him to do anything. This is completely independent in and of himself. He's completely free. Psalm 115.3 Memorize it. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Nothing, nothing pressures Him from either side. Nothing influences God from any direction. We read in verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We see there that God is taking counsel, but not outside of Himself. He's taking counsel within the Trinity. Within the Godhead, he's, he's taking counsel with Himself. Ephesians 1 says He does all things according to the counsel of His will. So when it comes to the, the initiative of creating mankind, it was completely God. Independent. He just began to create. No one came to God and helped Him. No one came to God and said, you know it would really be nice? Some creatures... To bear your image. To give you glory. No, no one helped him see the benefit. And there was no shortcoming in his character where he said, man, I would really like to display my love or share my love. No, it was just independent. It was his own good pleasure. So we are made of God's idea. We are made of God's initiative. We are also made of God's power. This is the action continuing. If you look at chapter 2 of Genesis chapter of Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature and then if you look over at verse 22 of chapter 2 and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man for those of you who don't know, Genesis chapter 2 verse 5, going to the end of chapter 2, fits inside of verses 26 and 27 here. It's just an expanded version of these two verses. 
Now, children, young people, of what were our first parents made? Did y'all hear that? Did y'all get that? It was pretty quick. Okay. God made the body of Adam out of the ground and formed Eve from the body of Adam. You'll have a chance to redeem yourself later. It was God's supernatural power. If it were not for God breathing into Adam, if it were not for God making a rib into a woman, Adam would have remained a lump of dirt. Eve would have remained a bone. God had to interject His own supernatural power to make human beings. In Job chapter 33, verse 4, we read this. Just to let you know, this is not just Adam and Eve. He says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So God's own power, His supernatural power, is the active agent in the creation of the first man and the first woman and also every human being. God interjects life. Scientists can't tell you what makes life start. They can make robots or, or whatever. They can make all these things, but they can't make life. So God interjects His supernatural power and makes them into life, living beings. So we're made, we're God's idea, God's initiative, we're made by God's power. The fourth implication of our being created by God is that God is the sustainer of our lives. This is God's action continues throughout our life. In Psalm 54.4 we read this, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. And then in Acts 17.28 we read, In Him we live and move and have our being. Right now, have it. God keeps all human beings alive every second of every day. Now we, we all know, people live and die in good shape and in bad shape. We all know people who have exercised and ran and eaten right and we say, man, he was healthy as an ox. And he dropped dead. And we also know people who should have been dead five years ago, but they're still alive and we don't know why. Nothing that we do guarantees life. Nothing. Because God is the sustainer of life. Our being is derived from God. God is being. We are human Beings. We derive our life and our existence from Him. And Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of His power. And if the universe, then the stars and the galaxies and the planets, and if the planets, then earth, and if earth, then every single being on the earth, and if every single being, then every single man and woman and child on the earth, Jesus upholds our life on the earth. So not only did He create life by supernatural power, but He sustains it. Every second of every day, every time your your lungs breathe in and out, God is making them pump. He's holding them together. Every time your heart beats, He's making it pump. Every time, every every neuron that your brain fires off, every blood cell that pumps through your veins, every little stomach germ that comes into your body and could 
make you sick or not make you sick or make you drop dead, God decides this one will make you sick. This one won't make you sick. This one will make you die. This one won't make you die. Every second of every day. He sustains our life. So we're God's idea, made by God's initiative, by God's power, sustained by God's power. And then, it gets even better. God has also predetermined all of our lifetimes. So this is the action continuing, God's action continuing according to God's plan. Acts 17.26 says this, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You ultimately have no control over the length of your life. No control whatsoever, ultimately. Now, some people say, well, I'm never going to die. I'm never going. Well, that's contrary to biblical commands to take care of your body and to be a good steward of what God has given you. But you ultimately have no control. You can't add a single day to your life. We studied that in Matthew. It's set in stone. Ultimately, you didn't make it start, and you can't make it stop. You say, well, I can commit suicide. Well, even that has already been predetermined. You, do you notice how God-centered our very existence is? It's all centered around God. God does it all. And the last implication of our being created by God is this. We are a part of God's plan. Humans are active and yet passive in the procreation process. Procreation is our role based on scriptural commands. God does command in His Word husbands and wives to participate in the activities used for procreation. And we all know sometimes it works for procreation and sometimes it doesn't. What do we learn from that? Ultimately, God creates life. And we're going to talk about this more when we talk about children in a few weeks and we'll talk about being pro-life being versus being pro-choice. But God creates life. And God chooses when life starts. And God chooses when life ends. God chooses when it happens. And God chooses when it doesn't happen. You are not God. Don't try to tell God how to do His job. As Vody Bauckham says, we make love, God makes babies. All human beings are created by God. Number two. All human beings are created in God's image. Verse 27. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. All human beings are created in the image of God. I want to emphasize this from the beginning. This is every individual. Male and female. Notice... He created him, male and female, he created them. And notice, those are the only distinctions. Male, female. It does not say, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, black and white, smart and dumb, young and old. No, male and female. Those are the distinctions. So no matter your age, no matter your gender, your skin color, your religion, or your claimed sexual orientation, for the time being, until you decide to change it again in five years, 
every human being, every individual person by themselves is created in the image of God. And that's where we get our value and our dignity as human beings. Every one of them. No one is any less in the image of God than anybody else. I am not more the image of God than a homosexual. Does that mean that they live a sinful lifestyle? Absolutely. Should they repent and change? Absolutely. Am I any more or less in the image of God? No. Should I treat them with the, with the, same, the same respect and value and dignity as I treat someone else? Yes. Because they're made in the image of God. So what does it mean though that we're made in the image of God? Every individual is made in the image of God. Now, if you begin to read on this, especially historically, theologians have gone back and forth on this stuff. There's been so much conversation and debate on what it means that we're in the image of God because the text doesn't just say, this is what it means. Some say we should look at what makes us different than the other creatures. What makes us different than animals and trees? That's what it means to be the image of God. And so, let's say the image of God is our ability to reason our intellect, our, our non-physical aspects like our soul. Others would say the, the, the image of God is found in our relational aspects. Uh, our, 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 how we relate to people and how we relate to God. Others say it's in our functional aspects. That the image of God is seen in what we do. Um, I don't think it's any of these only or specifically or in particular. I think if we look at the text and read what it says around this, the text spells out what has been called a functional, holistic image of God that sort of carries with it aspects of all these other um, opinions, um, but, but definitely sticks closer to the text, which I'm a fan of. So every individual human being bears the image of God in three ways. In our ability to relate to God, in our ability to relate to each other, and our ability to relate to nature. Our ability to relate to God, our ability to relate to each other, our ability to relate to nature. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Verse 27, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him Male and female, He created them. Only human beings have the ability to relate to God in that we bear His image back to Him. Only people. Only mankind. Only human... And this is kind of how this works. Only human beings have the ability to know and love God. No other creature that God has ever made, can know God and love God. Now think about this. If I were to ask you, who does God love more than anybody else in the universe? The answer would be Himself. He loves God more than anybody. Now what other creature can love God? Only us. No other creature can love God. Only human beings have been made to love and know God. Animals can't know and love God. Trees can't know and love God. Nothing else can be indwelt by the Spirit of God and pointed to and focused on God 
to know Him and to love Him like we can. We could also think of this in the, the meta-narrative of the Gospel. Think of the Gospel from beginning to end. We are created in the image of God. Sin comes, we fall, and the image is marred. Jesus redeems us, and the image begins to be restored. And then in heaven, we're glorified, and we are made to be like Christ again, in the image of God perfectly. That's salvation. That's what God is redoing. He's reinstalling the image of God that was fallen from sin and that comes in our knowing and loving God. Only humans can know and love God. And this is how we relate to Him. Secondly, every individual bears His image in our ability to relate to each other. Notice again in verse 27. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created him. He created them. Human beings were not created for isolation. We could see that God took counsel within the Trinity. Let us make man after our image, after our likeness. And then He created male and female, not for isolation, but to be together. Only People, only human beings were created in this form. Nowhere else in all the creation narrative do we see God saying, let us make trees. Let us make plants. Now, there are a bunch of trees. There are a bunch of plants. There can't be two trees without one tree. There can't be all the trees on the world without first having... That's how trees, they, they propagate just like people. Not just like people, they propagate. But only with hum, human beings did God say, let us make man in our image. So we bear God's image and our ability to relate to each other. We can love one another like no other creature can. You say, well, I've seen dogs that love to lay on each other. You know, I've seen turtle doves that love to nestle. No, that's not love. Human beings can meet each other and can point one another to God who is our greatest good. See, that's true love acting on behalf of someone else to point them to their greatest good regardless of the outcome. That's true love, and only human beings can do that. You've never seen a horse go tell another horse about God. They don't do that. Only people can do that. That's Holy Spirit-empowered love. Animals, they can feed one another, they can nurture one another, they can take care of one another. You can see a, you know, a groundhog can, can dig a hole and put its young down in there, and so what? That's just animal instinct. You see some men and they say, well, I provide a household for my family. Good job. A badger does that. You've, you've met the, the animal qualifications of an animal. Only human beings can love one another to the point that we point one another to our greatest good. So we can relate to one another in a way that no other creature can. And then thirdly, we bear God's image in our ability to relate to nature. Or, I could say, in our ability to carry out the mandate that God has given us on the earth. Verse 28. God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Human beings have been given as God's vice-regents on the earth. We are to carry out God's dominion. 
We are extensions of God's rule. God rules ultimately, and then He sends us as His representatives to have dominion over everything on the earth. Only people. People will never not be the top of the food chain. We, we rule. We have dominion. We, we control the earth. And so when we do these things properly, when we love God the way we should, when we love one another the way we should, and when we relate to nature and the world around us the way we should, we are bearing the image of God perfectly. Think about it. When Jesus was asked, what was the, what's the greatest commandment? What was it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And as Christians, we are to carry out the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. We go spreading the Gospel, spreading the dominion of the King over the whole earth, while we love God and love our neighbor. That is our mandate on the earth. This is how we carry out the image of God. So all human beings are created in God's image. Thirdly, all human beings are created to display God's glory. Verse 28 again. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. All human beings, every single human being, has been created to display God's glory. God has placed His own specially designed, patented, copyrighted, image-bearing creatures on this planet. And He's given us duties to fulfill. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And subdue it. Two rules from creation. Fill the earth. What does that do? That puts image bearers around the whole globe. God's image covers the globe. And we bear God's image everywhere we go. And subdue it. Carry out God's rule and God's dominion over the whole earth. Subdue the earth. We are under God, but we are over creation. And this serves to display God's glory. Now the question is, how does that serve to display God's glory? I'm glad you asked. When we talk about God's glory, we're talking about His, His singular splendor, His, His, His majestic appearance. In the Old Testament, it would be like... Uh, it was described as His Shekinah glory, the, the, the brightness of His appearance. It was shine. But we also know that God does not have a body. You can't see God. So, His glory is seen in what He has made and in what He does. And human beings are the apex of what He has made. We are the pinnacle. All of creation exists for us. To be inhabited by us. Only human beings are made in the image of God. So we have a unique ability and responsibility to display God's glory. To, to show His, His greatness in the things that He's done and the things He's made. So here's the question. Do we display God's glory best by... Conducting a sort of trial and error experiment 
trying this because it feels right now and all oh, that didn't work so I'll try this because it feels right now and that didn't work and showing off our creativity and our ingenuity and showing how we can figure things out and, and showing how God created us with these great minds or do we display God's glory best by loving Him and by doing what He commands? By showing that His Design, his perfectly tailored design that he has set forth works. I think the answer is clear. We display God's glory best when we joyfully fulfill his commands, when we just do what he says. God's design shows God's infinite wisdom. See, Our designs show our unwavering foolishness. Look out in the world and look at all of our designs. Look at our ideas. Look at our creativity. And look at the foolishness of mankind. I mean, we can come up with some pretty cool stuff, but it's all worthless. It's all meaningless. When the earth is is purged with fire, it will be done away with. It's all worthless. But... When we look at what God has designed and we live to fulfill God's design, it displays His wisdom. It shows, look how wise God is. When people say, your life looks so great or things are going so well, you can't take any credit because it's just God's design. His design always works out to display His wisdom. Now we'll talk about specific commands in the future, concerning issues, but to believe and obey gives God the most glory. Not creativity, not just conjuring up ideas. And to reject and to disobey is to act as though your ideas and your plans are better than God's. It's it's to say, in essence, I know that's what the Bible says, but, and then you give excuses A, B, C, and D, This is what's right for my family. I know that's what it says, but God didn't know my situation. God didn't know I was going to be here. God wasn't aware. In essence, you're saying, I reject God's wisdom. I reject God. I'll just be God. It's idolatry to say, I will not follow God's design. As human beings, we are uniquely designed, created, and commanded by God to display God's glory, not our own. We do that on the earth by believing God and by doing what He commands. So, application. Since all this is true, three three things that we can take away. Number one, in all that we do, we are obligated to glorify God. How do we glorify God? Kids, how do we glorify God? By loving Him and by doing what He commands. It's simple. Love God, do what He says. In all that we do, we are obligated to bring God glory by loving Him and by doing what He commands. Listen, think about this. And think about the way our world talks. We are created as God's idea from God's initiative, with God's power, sustained by God, living lifetimes predetermined by God, we are active but yet passive in procreating ourselves. We're His creation. We're His. We have no claims. 
Isaiah 64, 8. It says, but now, O Lord, You are our Father. We are the clay. And You are our potter. We are all the work of Your hand. Paul says in Romans 9, has the potter no right over the clay? Think about it. Does God not have the right to do whatever He wants with His clay? You never hear clay saying, hey potter, make a vase out of me, make a cup out of me, make a bowl out of me. Never. He is the potter, we are the clay. We have no claims of authority over ourselves. We have no claims of authority over our lives. We have no claims of authority over our patterns. We have no claims of authority over our structures. So in the abortion debate, when you hear a woman say, it's my body, I can do what I want, you say, no it's not. It's not your body. You cannot do what you want. Neither is that body inside of you. Because God determines when life begins, not you. We have no claims to life. It wasn't our idea. It wasn't our initiative. It's not our power. We don't sustain it. We don't plan the days. And we're active and yet passive in keeping it going. It's all God. He owns the copyright. We are His creation. This is a God-centered worldview. It does not come back to us to decide what we want to do. Number two, we cannot and must not live from a secular humanistic worldview. Notice I did not say confess a secular humanistic worldview. Again, if I asked most of you, you would agree with everything I've said. But then when we go out and we live our lives, we can often live a worldview that says something different than what we say we believe. Listen, all people have value and dignity. Every skin color, every age, male, female, every ethnicity, there's no, there's no such thing as race. Mark that off your vocabulary. There's one race, human. Every ethnicity, every mental capability, they're all the same. They all have value and dignity. And so our duty is to treat all of life with that value and dignity. Life with value and dignity from the moment of conception to last breath. It's valuable. Why is it valuable? Because it's God's. It's not ours. Brittany Maynard was 29 years old. She had terminal brain cancer. She was going to die. She was going to die. And they said, you can kill yourself. And she said, okay, I will kill myself. She was wrong. Because it was not hers to take. It was not her life. Again, abortion, it's not yours to take. It's not your life. Life is in God's hand. It's not our job to decide when life should end or when life should begin. It's in God's hands. And that includes popping pills every month to keep life from beginning. Number four, we live as those under authority. We are God's creation. We do what God says, not us. We don't call the shots. Life is God's. We, as a church, under that sign, we are a pro-life church. Because we're a pro-God church. We're a God church. Not a, we're not a human church. Not a pro-human church. Number three, we must obey God's design. God's design is best 
God's design will bring us the most joy. God's design will bring Him the most glory. And God's design will contradict the world. God's design will put us at enmity with the world. And to be a friend of the world is to be at enmity with God. So therefore, to be a friend of God is to be at enmity with the world. You say, well, surely not. No, no, no. I can live. I can be a Christian. I can live a Christian life and still get along with the world. Take that up with Jesus. Because Jesus bore the image of God perfectly and they crucified Him for it. They hated Him for it. I want to read this quote. It's kind of long. This is uh, from Bruce Ware in Biblical Foundations for Manhood and Womanhood. He says, quote, Our Lord Jesus surely exhibited this expression of the image of God in His own human earthly life. Made fully human and filled with the Holy Spirit, He was fully He was a fully faithful representation of God through His human and finite nature. In relationship with God and others, He then sought fully and wholly to carry out the will of the Father who sent Him into the world. In John's Gospel, there are over 30 references to Jesus saying, I have come to do the will of the Father. More than any other man, Jesus exhibited this as a uniform and constant desire. He represented God in word, attitude, thought, and action throughout His whole life and ministry. As such, Jesus was in human nature the representation of God, so that in relation to God and others, He might represent God in fulfilling His God-given responsibilities as He functioned always and only to do the will of His Father. End quote. Jesus did it perfectly, and it led to the crucifixion. To be a friend of the world is to be at enmity with God. To be a friend of God is to be at enmity with the world. Listen, God's design will cause you to be at enmity with your friends, your family, your neighbors. They will turn your, their heads. They will question your motives. They will think you're crazy. You say, well, that's not true. Well, it's probably because you're not living it. So the question is, do you carry God's image perfectly? Do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength perfectly? Do you love your neighbor as yourself perfectly? Are you fulfilling God's mandate to, to subdue the earth and bring it under the reign of Christ perfectly? This is how we bear God's image. This is God's design. And I would hope that we would all agree we're not doing it. We can't. We're fallen. We're sinful. This why it's good news that everywhere we fail, Jesus has already done this in our place. He's come before us. He's, he's lived the pattern in our place. So when we see God's design over the next nine weeks and we, we see that we've fallen short, it's, it's an opportunity to look and rest in Christ again. To thank God that He sent His Son to bear His image in our place so that we could be imputed His righteousness by faith. Let's pray.